Let's spend a few minutes in quiet prayer as we calm our hearts, as we come before the throne of grace. If there's any sin in our life, if there's any uh, thing that uh, we want to present before our Lord, let's do it now. In the quietness of this time, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ uh, and through his salvific work on the cross, we enter into his presence through prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning aware and cognizant of the fact that we do not deserve to come before Almighty God. And yet, because of your grace, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, that which we deserve, so that through your shed blood there is forgiveness of sin. And so we come and are reminded of this truth and the response we have is one of praise and glory and adoration. As your people gather in corporate worship this morning, as you look down from heaven, may you see men and women whose hearts are attuned and are aligned with yours. A heart that seeks in humility to worship the one who is worthy. If there is any time that we have fallen away, or perhaps some this morning are not walking or do not know you, would you use the mighty word of God to challenge and to convict lives with the Holy Spirit do the work of conviction so that we would recognize our inability to save ourselves and eyes will be open to the provision of Jesus who saves. Thank you for this church, Lord. Thank you that you have used it through the many years to be a lighthouse, that shining city upon a hill. Continue to use it to make us relevant in this community. Let us not be stagnant in our spiritual walk as a community and individually. Let us be challenged to go forth and reach out to the many who are lost, the imperfect, so that they can be made perfect in Christ as we too are imperfect and through your grace have been made perfect. So thank you, Lord, for the privilege of this body coming together to support one another, help us to fulfill the role that is the church. Guide your servant as he speaks forth your word. May each word be true to the text and be spoken with conviction. 
and the Spirit touching each heart this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Again, welcome to our 11 o'clock worship service. Before we begin looking at our text, can I just express a heartfelt thank you for your outpouring of love and support. It has allowed me to ease into another decade of my life. And your overwhelming sense of love and encouragement, not only today or yesterday or last week, but just really the years that I've been here. Uh, you can see very visibly from my change in size uh, that you have blessed me very much. Uh, if I was progressing the other way, then many would wonder if Grace was taking care of their pastor. But you have taken care of me and my family, uh, and for that I'm eternally grateful. Uh, and it goes without saying that uh, it is not the facilities, it is not the church itself as an institution, it is the people of this church and uh, your encouragement uh, and your life transformation before my eyes through the work of the Holy Spirit uh, is the encouragement uh, for me coming as a young pastor, uh, coming into a very difficult situation as many of you know. Uh, and there were times that uh, really, honestly, and I've shared it before, that I wanted to bail and go back home, home being the States. But to see what God is doing through his word um, and changing your life has been so life-giving to me. Uh, and it's not necessarily the cakes or the greetings. It really is um, a life uh, that you live that uh, mimics and more imitates Jesus that brings joy to my life as a pastor. Uh, and so I want to thank you for that, church. I thank you for your encouragement of me. And I hope that I can serve the Lord faithfully uh, until he calls me home uh, in this situation and in this context uh, to be able to challenge you. Uh, with God's word. So thank you very much. Well, I did turn 40 yesterday, and I have been dealing with this dreaded moment uh, for years. Because according to the World Bank, the life expectancy of an American is 78.74 years. So by hitting 40 years old, I am now at the second half of my life. But then I came to the realization this past week that I may be of American citizenship, but I live here in the Philippines. And so I happened to check the life expectancy of those living in the Philippines. And according to the World Bank, the life expectancy of those who live in the Philippines is 68.55 years. Ten years less. See the sacrifice I made to come here. I will live ten years less. So that means I am not at the halfway point of my life. I'm actually done with two-thirds of my life. And so uh, with a bit of dread uh, and with a bit of humor, I, I thought maybe this week I, I'm hitting my midlife crisis point. And so I googled symptoms of the midlife crisis. And I came to a very interesting list, uh, uh, a, a legitimate website that really diagnosed symptoms of people who go through midlife crises. Uh, and I examined my life in reflection against this list. And it came out, uh, apparently, that if you're suffering from a midlife crisis, if you exemplify some of these things. Number one, you look into the mirror and you no longer recognize yourself. Well, I looked myself in the mirror this week and unfortunately I recognize myself. Things have not changed. 
I guess that was good. There was a silver lining in that. Number two, desiring to quit a good job. I have no desire to quit this job, and so hopefully I'm not in my midlife crisis. I like this one, number three. Unexplained bouts of depression when doing tasks that used to make you happy. So I thought about tasks that made me happy, and that which makes me the most happy is, of course, eating. And I found no depression in eating this week, uh, and so this did not describe me. Another one was a change of habit, specifically a desire to get into physical shape. I do not have a desire to get into physical shape. As has been said by many, round is a shape. Uh, And so uh, I do not fall into this category. Another one was you are suffering from a midlife crisis if you desire for physical free-flowing movement like running or biking or dancing or fast red sports car or skydiving. I looked at this list and realized none of these are on my things to do. Another one was excessively buying new clothes and taking more time to look good. So I asked my wife, have you noticed a tendency for me to look good this past few days? She said, honey, ever since I married you, you have made no attempt to look better. Another one was hair change. Some from a natural change in thickness, luster, color, or for some assisted change in the dying of hair suddenly, or perhaps a deep desire to shave your head bald. As many of you know, I've only had two hairstyles in my entire life. I have no desire to change, although it seems like everyone wants me to change. So I don't fit into this category. And the last one I'll share, but there are many on this list. You're suffering from a midlife crisis if you enjoy hanging out with a younger generation as their energy and ideas stimulate you. I'm sorry, but as I get older, I have no desire to hang out with younger people because it only depresses me seeing how much energy and great ideas they have. Hooray for basketball leagues for 40 and up. So after going through this list, I was very glad that I am not going through a midlife crisis. But all humor aside, as we look into our lives, we all enter moments of crisis. doesn't matter what age, we all go through crisis doesn't matter our lifestyle, doesn't matter our social economic level. We all go through moments of crisis. For some, it is triggered by a sudden hospitalization of yourself or of a loved one. For others, it is an unexpected case where a spouse just walks out on their family. Some go through moments of crisis when doctors share with their family test results that reveal the presence of a potentially fatal illness. People go through moments of crisis when they find out that their, fi- their company can no longer keep them, and so they will be let go. They will be fired. Or perhaps the business they are managing or the business they own will go into bankruptcy and must be closed. Or perhaps a young child or infant has unexpectedly died. It's moments like these that bring us to a period of chaos and despair in our life. And the question this morning is when you go through moments of crisis... What type of faith do you exemplify? Especially in the context of our sermon series, as we reach out to those who are imperfect, those who are lost, those who are sinners. When we go through moments of crisis, or when they go through moments of crisis, how can we help them in those times? 
As we continue our new sermon series entitled Imperfect, we are reminded that we are to reach out to the many who are imperfect so that they will be made perfect in Christ, just as we who are imperfect are made perfect in Christ. What type of faith, therefore, is needed to handle crisis? Let's take a look in the Bible this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, as we take a look at verses 1 to 10. We've been in the Gospel of Luke these many weeks. And we're looking at how Jesus reached out to those who were lost. Luke chapter 7, as I read, look with me as I read from verses 1 and 2. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. The Bible tells us that Jesus goes back to his hometown of Capernaum, or his home base of Capernaum. His hometown of Nazareth had rejected him, if you remember, from a few weeks ago, after he had spoken the Sermon on the Mount. And we read the Sermon on the Mount in our scripture reading. And as he's there resting, we find out that in another town in Palestine, that there is a Roman centurion, a commander uh, of a group of about 80 to 100 men, who had a servant, the Bible says, who was very ill. In fact, at the point of death. For some reason, this servant was very close to this Roman commander. Very special to him. Now, we're not given any more detail as to their relationship. Perhaps we can conjecture that this servant may have saved the life of this centurion somehow. Or perhaps had simply been very faithful to his family for years. But for this Roman commander, it was a moment of crisis. One whom he cared for dearly was very sick at the point of death. And in this moment of crisis, this Gentile centurion would seek a Jewish man whom he had heard was called Jesus, who had healed others. And as we receive some background information in these two verses, I want to stop here and I want you to notice two things. First of all, I want you to note that faith is most often tested and made evident when we enter moments of crisis. When crisis hits in your life, that is when your faith, whether weak or strong, is made most evident. It is in those moments of crisis that we come to terms with our own inadequacies. Oftentimes, our souls and our spirit is very much attuned with the more spiritual aspects of our life. It is in these moments of crisis that we often think about our own mortality and the life after this. It is in these moments of crisis when men and women are made sensitive to spiritual counsel and to spiritual things. I know it is very difficult to reach out to the lost, the imperfect, the sinners of this world with the message of Jesus Christ. But you know, my friends, if you are journeying with them, if you're walking with them in life, then as they enter moments of crisis, you can step in and play the role of a spiritual guide or a spiritual counselor. As they enter moments of great disappointment or great hurts, or moments simply of utter debilitating crisis, you can step into their life because their hearts will be malleable, their hearts will be tender, their hearts will be soft towards the spiritual things of life. Now, of course, you don't want to wish upon your great friend's crisis. 
But yet crisis does happen in everyone's life. Troubles do hit. And if you're simply there for them, then you can step in. That's why it was noticed, that's why it was noted that after America's confidence was shaken after the terrorist attack of 9-11, that many people who don't normally go to church filed into the churches, and across America, churches were packed. That's why often in funeral homes and in hospitals do men and women make decisions of faith because it is, it is in those moments of crisis when they come face-to-face with the mortality of their close loved ones or their own mortality. And we as believers must be ready in those moments to step in. Unfortunately, many of us are scared when friends and family go into moments of crisis. We don't know what to say, and so we step back and we shy away. My friends, it is in those moments that you need to step in. It is in those moments you need to step in and provide a spiritual guide and a spiritual compass to tell them about the one who can bring comfort into their life. Another thing I want to note is that it doesn't matter how high or prestigious or elite a person is. When moments of crisis hit the life of someone, they need the very thing you need as well. Somehow we have the notion that those who are higher up in society, that those who are wealthier, that those who stand in position above us are harder to talk to, that somehow they don't have the same needs that we have. And because we have this sort of thinking, we don't dare approach them to comfort them, to share with them in their moment of hurt. Of course, their position have earned them a bit more respect sometimes. But truth be told, they are human beings like you and me. They have the same needs that you and I have. I've spoken to many prominent men and women around the world. And you know what's very interesting? Once you talk to them, you quickly realize they have the same needs that you and I have. In fact, many of them have told me, Pastor, would you just tell your congregants that we're normal people? We have the same hurts. We have the same felt needs. They need Jesus just as much as we need Jesus. In fact, if you have the courage to see them as normal human beings, unless they have a chip on their shoulder or unless they have a very arrogant attitude, prominent people are quite easy to talk to. You know, recently I was able to talk to a foreigner who was the COO of a multinational company. In fact, uh, he's the COO of the leading life insurance provider in the Philippines. And as we were chatting, he told me a very interesting story. He told me that he had just recently bought an insurance policy from one of his own agents. I said, really? You are the COO of the leading insurance provider in the Philippines? Did you not have insurance? And he told me, no. I have insurance. But this agent, newly trained, had the courage to approach me because we've been teaching our agents to go and share the product with everyone they meet and not to assume that anyone has anything. And I was so impressed that my agent would have the courage and the non-assumption to think that I would have a policy, and so she gave me the same company spiel about buying insurance. And you know what? I bought insurance from her. I bought another policy. 
Now put yourself in the position of that insurance agent. Many of you are in the insurance business in our church. How many of you have ever tried to sell a policy to your chief executive? Have you ever thought about it? I'm sure that after this sermon, all of you will go rushing out to try to sell insurance to your boss. But that's my point. Here's my point. My point is this. Somehow we have the notion that those who are higher up in a prominent position or those that are beyond who we are and where we are and those who are different from us are untouchable. Let me tell you, they are human beings like you and me. They are and have the same felt need and the real need. If only we would realize that those who are prominent have the same needs, same need for food and of shelter, the same spiritual need that all are helpless when a loved one is sick and dying and there is no known cure. Don't fear men and women of power. They need Jesus just as much as you do because they cannot buy their way into heaven. They cannot do enough good works to get themselves into heaven. When we go through moments of crisis, it is your opportunity when they go through moments of crisis to share with them what allowed you to pass through it, and that is Jesus. Now, what does moments of crisis often lead to? Look at verses 3 to 5. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. For someone in the moment of crisis, you become desperate. And for this centurion, who I'm I'm sure had done everything humanly in his capacity as a centurion, as a Roman commander, to try to save the life of his beloved servant, he realized he couldn't do anything. And he apparently had heard of this man named Jesus and his ability to heal people. And with faith, he desperately sought out his Jewish friends who were elders in the community to serve as an intermediary to connect with this Jesus. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? I want you to be put into his position. Imagine what sort of humility it must have taken for a high-ranking Roman Gentile commander to ask help from the very people he was oppressing and subjugating through rule of force. One must be very desperate to do something like this. Let me ask you, how many of you have ever asked your helper or your house helper or your yaya or your driver to ask them for a favor, to ask one of their friends to meet someone because you need help? I'm sure very few of us have ever done that, if not any, because we would be embarrassed. It's as if we are saying we have no other means to help ourselves. We don't do it because it's shameful. We don't do it because we would owe them something. And we employ them. We simply don't do this until you come to a moment of crisis where your own abilities are not able to help you and it leads to desperate action. So was the case with a centurion and a servant. And he no longer cared about protocol and saving face. He just needed help. 
Remember, my friends, moments of crisis often leads to acts of desperation. Moments of crisis often lead to acts of desperation. And it is in those times, if you are ready with the gospel message, that we can share with men and women who are desperate for a change in life. It is in those moments that we can step in and serve as spiritual guides to lead them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to enter into a church community where they can know Christ more. Apparently, the Jewish leaders were very fond of this centurion. He was very kind to them. In fact, the Bible tells us in verse 5 that he even built a place of worship for them, what we call a synagogue. Now, oftentimes, many have read this passage and they come away with two wrong notions. The first wrong notion, as they read these verses, is the notion that somehow Jesus responds only to those who are deserving. Because that's what the elder said, verse 4. Please come, for the one you do this for is deserving. Does it matter whether you're deserving or not? Does God's grace only pour out to those who are deserving? A wrong notion is that Jesus only responds, God only responds to those who are deserving. Another wrong notion is that somehow your past actions justify a favorable response from God. Somehow, because of what you have done in the name of Christ or in the name of God, will justify God being more favorable to you. That's what the elders were trying to say. He loves us. He built for us a synagogue. I want you to dispel these notions. Jesus Christ... The Son of God, God Himself, cannot be bought. All of us are deserving of God's equal love. His unconditional love means that His attention to each of us is equal. Also, our past actions do not mean that God will respond favorably in one way or another. God's grace is what He uses to care for us. We're not here to bribe God. We're not here to blackmail God. Hey, God, look at all I've done for you. You owe this one to me. Many Christians are like that. We serve God faithfully, of course. But we serve God because in the back of our minds, we're going to collect from God later on. Now, we can remind God of what we've done, of how faithful we've been. But in no way does our past actions mean that God will be favorable to our request. He does things on the basis of his own perfect will. In fact, I want to ask another question. If the centurion is so desperate, how come he doesn't come personally to plead his case before Jesus? Was he arrogant? As we're going to find out in verse 6 to 10, there's a reason why he doesn't come. And the reason Jesus responds to this request was not because he deserved it, not because of the past actions he's done, but because of his faith, because of this this centurion's faith. And through the faith of this centurion, we want to draw out two aspects of faith that people in crisis must exemplify for them to see Jesus. Two aspects of faith that we need to cultivate in our own lives so that the world can see how we handle crisis, how we can have peace that passes all understanding even though the world 
is in utter chaos. Let's take a look at the faith that the centurion exemplifies, verse 6 and 7. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. Jesus went with these elders to the centurion's home, and before he reached there, the centurion had sent another party to bring Jesus a message. And here was the message, Lord, I'm sorry to trouble you. You don't need to come any longer. You don't need to come to my house. Why? Because I am unworthy. I am unworthy to to have you, Lord, come into my house. In fact, I did not personally come and see you. Why? Because I was not worthy to come and even ask this request from the Lord. So, Lord, just say the word and he will be healed. You see, a faith that is needed in moments of crisis is a faith, number one, if you're taking notes, a faith that recognizes the worthiness, the value of Jesus in comparison to your own unworthiness. A faith that recognizes the value, the worthiness of Jesus and your own unworthiness. This is a faith that must be exemplified for men and women in crisis to come to Jesus. Why do I say this? Because men and women who think themselves worthy able to handle a situation, people who think themselves of value and of worth will never call upon the help of someone else. Because if you can do it by yourself, why do you ask others to help? That's why many of us pray as a last resort. When crisis hits in our life, Our first response is not prayer. It is our last response because we are doing everything in our own ability with our own hands and our own feet and our own mind to try to solve this problem. And it is when the problem cannot be solved that we then say a word of prayer. Lord, I'm at my wit's end. Lord, I need help from you. And that is why moments of crisis that show forth desperate action is when you can elicit a faith that recognizes I am unable, I am unworthy, but there is one who is worthy. There is someone of value. Worthiness has to do with value. And if someone sees Jesus Christ as valuable and very special, as as this centurion did, then we will seek him in humility. And that's why Jesus can say what he says. And that's why men and women can turn to him. That's why the centurion can say, Lord, you don't need to come to my house or even see me or meet me. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus has worth. He is of value. He is the son of God. He is God himself. And he can heal without even having to meet the person. Well, men and women are worthless. They are not worthy because we don't even know What's going to happen tomorrow? Do we Christians have this type of faith? Do we value Jesus so much and ourselves so little that we can act similarly? 
This centurion really believed he couldn't do it. He was unworthy in comparison to someone of great worth. And therefore, he spoke these words, Lord, you don't need to come. Just say the word, and it will happen. This is not fake humility. This is a humility that comes out of a faith that recognizes his position in comparison to the position of God. For example, in moments of crisis, do you say, Jesus, you do as you please. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to demand anything from you because I have no standing or position to do so. Very few of us pray like this because we don't have this type of faith. We tell God in our prayers what he should do, how he should implement my will. And that is why often God doesn't answer our prayers in accordance with our will. Here we are demanding something that we have no position or standing to demand. If we cultivate a faith that recognizes the worthiness of Jesus and our own unworthiness, then we will turn to him. Our children's choirs are going through their annual voice assessment. And each child is made to fill out a questionnaire uh, about their life. Because more than vocal assessment and training them musically, uh, it's wonderful that our staff and teachers of our choirs want to ensure that the spiritual life of these children, these young people, are in the right place. We want to know a bit about their family background, how we can help minister to them, especially uh, as they sing in these choirs. Uh, I looked at this questionnaire, and one of the questions towards the end was the question, do you think you are special, yes or no? And how they answer that question, why or why not? Now, here's the point of this question. It's not uh, to try to boost the ego of these children. Uh, It's a way for us to assess whether these children have self-confidence issues, uh, whether these children are going through something uh, in their homes or in their lives that are affecting them uh, in their emotional development. One of the teachers yesterday shared with me what my seven-year-old daughter wrote. To the question, do you think you are special, she wrote in capital letters, yes, Y-E-S, yes. And to the question, why she thought she was special, she wrote, I'm special because I'm the daughter of the pastor. I'm scared when she becomes a teenager. I need to pray more fervently for her. My wife and I laughed about this. And as I thought about uh, her statement written in uh, Innocence as a Child, sometimes this is how believers act. We who are children of God think that somehow our special standing before God puts us near equal with Him. And so we as children of God can demand from Him anything and everything and He should implement it as we want it or else we will throw a life tantrum. What we have forgotten is that we are only children of the king, not the king himself. We should not forget this position. This centurion did not forget where he stood in the pecking order of things, especially when he couldn't do what he wanted to do. And so he finally deferred to the one in whom he had faith could do it. 
A faith that recognizes the worthiness, the value of Jesus in our own inability and worthlessness. When men and women go through moments of crisis, it is this aspect of faith that they must cultivate if they don't know Jesus, for them to turn to Jesus. It is an attitude we are to cultivate so that we can show the world how we handle moments of crisis. It's not because of us that we can get out of it. It is because of the one we look to. The second aspect of faith is in verse 8. Look with me. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This centurion, through his emissaries, tell Jesus, Like you, Jesus, I am one who is in authority. I tell my soldiers something they are to do, and they must do it. They must obey. In the same way, he is acknowledging Jesus. You are in authority over everything, including authority over illnesses. And you, as the Son of God, whether he understood the great theology of that, he understood that Jesus was in authority. And he had authority over all things, including the authority over illness. And if he were to command the illness to go away, it would go away. And here in this verse, verse 8, it is exhibited the second aspect of faith that we must cultivate when we go through moments of crisis. Number two, a faith that recognizes the authority of God. A faith that recognizes the authority of God. Those who undergo crisis must have a faith that recognizes the authority of God before they will trust Him. You see, in moments of crisis, in moments of chaos, in moments of despondency, we want someone to take charge. We want someone to tell us what to do, someone to take control. Who will it be? When men and women who don't know Jesus enter moments of crisis, it is when you step in and you show them there is one under authority which we must place our lives under. There is one who can lead us from the chaos of this life. There is one who can give us an answer. Because in moments of disarray, we need someone to step forward and tell us, I have an answer. I can deal with this situation. We are looking for someone in authority. And that's why we have referees in sports, right? We may not agree with them. They may make us mad. They may make mistakes. But because of the referees, they bring peace to a chaotic sports situation. We give them authority to make decisions, and their decisions are binding and that's why oftentimes in sports oath, there is a section there where we note that we will abide by the rules and we will also abide by the decisions of the referees. If not, there will be chaos. When are referees inefficient? When they lose control of the game? When they are intimidated by the circumstances, perhaps the jeering fans? Referees become ineffective when they are Im- intimidated by players who are bigger than them or in basketball stand two or three feet taller than them, when they allow players to intimidate them and they begin to become wishy-washy in their decisions or no longer consistent, that is when they've lost the respect and the control of the situation. But our Lord is not intimidated by life's circumstances. He is best able to handle these circumstances because he does not make mistakes. He is so clear in his word 
He has full authority to handle all of life's circumstances. So when we go through moments of crisis, when we go through, as someone has termed, the dark night of the soul, when we are unsure of where we stand, Jesus' words are very, very clear. He does not waver. In full authority, he states very clearly, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He doesn't care how people will think. He doesn't care if he will offend anyone. He says it in the most clear words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And in that, he places full authority and takes full command of man's eternal destiny. It is through me. So if you're unsure, you come through me. That's why he can say in full authority, the words in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. For those who are unsure about their eternal destiny, he says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. If you believe in me, though you are dead, dead physically you will live forever jesus does not waver in how sure he is of what he is promising and in that he shows forth his authority and you can look at all the i am statements most of them are in the gospel of john jesus is very clear he leaves no doubt for how we can cling to him when we go through moments of desperation in crisis. What about you? Do you exhibit this type of faith? Do you recognize that Jesus is one who is authoritative? Do you exemplify this in the moments of your life when you're going through despair and crisis and when there's chaos all around your life, you cling to the one who is authoritative and so sure in how he leads us? And when we know that there is one who is guiding us and leading us in full charge, we have a peace that passes all understanding. A lot of people ask me, Pastor, why are you always so happy? Why is there such joy in your life? Does it come from your personality? Uh, truth be told, ask my wife, I'm a very grouchy person. Every morning I wake up on the wrong side of the bed. But the reality is, it's because there's often a lot of pressure in my life, especially for a pastor, and you know that. But there is joy in my life because the more I know Jesus, the more I read his word, the more I am settled of heart, knowing that the one who has full authority over my life has made life so crystal clear, it may be uncertain to me. I may not know what the future holds, I may not know what the decade holds. I may not know what happens tomorrow, but Jesus says, follow me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd leads his sheep to green grass. I am the door, he says. That is a picture and the connotation that he stands at the door and he protects us. What in the world do we have to fear? What in the world do we have to worry about in moments of utter chaos and in moments of crisis? We can have joy and a peace that passes all understanding. And the more you know Jesus, the more you walk intimately with him, the more you will come to the realization that you simply have faith 
and the one who is in full authoritative control and you just sit back and you relax. Isn't that wonderful? The world doesn't know this. But if the world sees that exemplified in your life, they will desire it. They will want it. Because crisis hits every person in every society, in every level. But if they see men and women of God who journey through those valley of the darkness of death and fear no evil. Because what does the psalmist write? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff What do they do? They comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Why? Because I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the truth of the scriptures. And Jesus affirms that when he says, I am who I am. Do you have a faith that recognizes the authority of God? How does this end? Look at verse 9 and 10. When Jesus heard these words, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Jesus was amazed at the faith of this Gentile centurion, this Roman commander. He commends him to the crowd that his faith is more than any of those I find amongst the Jewish people. I want you to note something. Jesus does not go to the house. Jesus does not say, servant, far away, be healed. The Bible simply ends it here. And most likely, he just went back home. As did this delegation from the centurion's household. They went back home. But when they went back home, what did they find? They found their servant who was at the point of death. He was no longer sick. There's no record in the Gospels that Jesus said anything in terms of a verbal command to heal the centurion. There's no record that the centurion ever talked to Jesus, never met him. Perhaps he would have run to thank Jesus. Nothing. I'm sure the crowd, if you notice in verse 9, there was a crowd that was following him. They were there because they wanted to see a show. And Jesus disappointed them, I guess, because they didn't see this dead man or near-death person come alive again. Because the point is not on the action. The point is on the attitude, the faith, the faith of this man. He doesn't explain, Jesus doesn't, how and why the servant is restored. Simply that this man had great faith. A faith that recognized the worthiness of Jesus, recognizes his own inability and his own unworthiness. A faith that recognizes the authority of God. If you're walking alongside someone who's on the fringe of faith, if you have friends and family who do not yet know Jesus Christ, and they hit a moment of crisis, try to cultivate in them a faith that recognizes their inability and show them the value and the worthiness of Jesus. Cultivate in them a faith 
for there is one who has full authority over life's circumstances so that you can show them a way of peace in a time of chaos. And what's one of the best ways to do that? My friends, live it out in your own life. Can you weather the storms of your life, the crisis points in your life, with the peace and tranquility and joy, knowing what Jesus can do and how he is in authority over all circumstances? Because if the world can sense your peace in a chaotic life, they will come and seek it from you when they go through moments of crisis. May God's word challenge us to reach out to the lost by how we live our lives. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is an encouragement to me. I pray that in the example of this centurion, that we would cultivate a centurion's faith, a faith that trusts in you, that shows ourselves correctly in the pecking order of things, and that's really low. To acknowledge the greatness of who you are and your ability to do everything. To live in peace knowing that in you we don't have to worry because all authority in heaven and under heaven are given to you, even the situation of our life. So may it be that we are blessings to others. Make me a blessing as that song goes. A blessing to the way we live our life so that we walk alongside men and women that when they enter moments of crisis, they will be able to see Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. As we sing our hymn of response, Make Me a Blessing.